It's time for Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, inviting the atheist, agnostic, and skeptic to examine for themselves the evidence for the Christian faith. We are all limited by what we do not know and by the things we think we know but are not true. Dr. Joe Mott earned his Ph.D. at LSU and was a distinguished math professor at Florida State University for 38 years, helping to write three math textbooks and authoring over 30 research articles in math. He is now the host of this radio program, Defending and Commending the Faith. Here is Joe Mott. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening. We have been discussing the doctrine of sin found in a condensed fashion in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Yet so many people dismiss with disdain this doctrine of sin. The tragedy is that the world and its leaders and statesmen, because they do not recognize the teaching of Scripture, think they can explain the world's condition in terms other than sin. The doctrine of sin went out of the public awareness some time ago, and psychology came in in its place. The idea is that man is just a poor creature who has never had a real opportunity to to succeed, and to whom you should be very sympathetic and very lenient. This is a modern idea. The idea now is that we are all basically good. And the trouble is that we have never been given a chance. What we need, we are told, is encouragement. But the Bible teaches that our troubles are not due to a lack of a chance, but to our initial disobedience to God that man deliberately rebels against God. And all this arises from man attempting to set himself up against God, desiring to be treated as a God himself. And the devil uses that motive to self-elevation as a point to establish a foothold to become a dominant force in the world. At the end of the last episode, I was discussing the three enslaving forces against people, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We had arrived to discussing the devil. Nothing about the character of the devil is the least bit surprising to a person who is reasonably familiar with the Bible. For whether we go to the earliest pages of the Old Testament, the prophets, the four Gospels, the Epistles, or the Book of Revelation, at every turn we are reminded of the devil's existence and warned of his evil activities. This is what the Apostle Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. He describes the Christian's warfare in this world and is showing that it is not merely a struggle against visible enemies, it is a struggle against the devil and those demonic agents that stand beyond the enemies we see. Formerly I said, 
For some time, it has been unfashionable in the church worldwide to believe in a personal devil or personal intelligent agents under his direction. I've had people say to me that it is foolish to believe in those superstitious ideas. After the resurrection, the church for the subsequent centuries endorsed the malevolent existence of the devil and his demonic agents. I see no obvious reason to abandon the plain teachings of Jesus, his apostles, and the Bible's clear warnings about the devil and the demons. Truth should always be the goal of every Christian. And the Bible should be the bedrock of the Christian's search for truth. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. In describing the spiritual forces of evil against whom we contend, Paul says three important things about the devil. First, the devil is a powerful foe, not omnipotent, nor omniscient, nor omnipresent like God, but still dangerous. When we say the devil is powerful, we must be careful not to overstate the case. Because the devil is spiritual and not a material being, some people are inclined to think of Satan as more or less equal to God. He is indeed the counterpart of the archangels Michael or Gabriel, the greatest of the unfallen angels. But the devil is not the counterpart to God. God is God. He is omnipotent, omniscient, supreme, etc. But the devil is not God and has none of these qualities. Paul warned us by using words to describe the devil's agents. He calls them rulers, authorities, powers, and forces, and by the fact that twice he encourages us to put on or take on the full armor of God to protect us from them. The devil's realm of rulers, authorities, powers, and forces has been spoiled by Christ's victory over them. Jesus resisted Satan in the wilderness, but defeated him and his henchmen at the cross and in the resurrection. The second characteristic of the devil is that he is wicked and destructive. He stands behind, quotes, the world rulers of this present darkness, in quotes, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It was this particular warning that motivated the psychiatrist M. Scott Peck to consider exorcisms as a way to liberate some of his clients. In the beginning, like most psychiatrists, Peck believed that destructive behavior merely needed to be redirected, which is what most psychotherapy or psychological counseling attempts to do. But his counseling brought him cases in which evil seemed to be existing for its own sake, independent of any redirecting efforts. So now with his second book coming out about his experience of exorcism, 
This warning hopefully will have a positive effect in the church. The third thing Paul says about the devil is that he is extremely sly and crafty. The New International Version of the New Testament rendering of Ephesians 6 verse 11 has Paul warning his readers to take a stand against the devil's schemes. Both the King James Version and the Revised Versions of the New Testament use the word wiles. The New English Bible uses the word devices. In 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11, Paul warns again, we are not unaware of his schemes. What these words mean is that the devil does not always attack us openly or in the same way. On the contrary, he uses a variety of methods. Genesis 3 calls him crafty in verse 1 and shows how he beguiled Eve. Luke chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 informs us that the devil was cunning in his temptation of Jesus at the end of Jesus' 40-day fast in the wilderness. Why is the devil subtle in his attacks? Because he sometimes can win a battle by deception more easily than by a frontal assault. So he is crafty in his approach to us. The scriptures reveal how the devil attacks one as a roaring lion in First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, but more often acts as a subtle as a serpent in Genesis 3, verse 1. Second, as a friendly counselor, for example, with Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, verse 5, or third, as an angel of light in Second Corinthians 11, verse 14, hoping that the appearance of truth and verity will convince us to follow his nefarious plan. Satan loves to give the impression of bringing enlightenment to us. Many have fallen by the so-called enlightenment from the prince of darkness. Satan may have someone say to you, you don't believe those old-fashioned stories you find in the Bible, do you? Nobody believes those myths anymore. Science has disproved God and all that demonic stuff. This form of supposed enlightenment comes from the, the academy and the public media. Martin Luther suggested... Quotes, when you look for the devil, don't forget the pulpit, end quotes. Christians must not assume that open persecution and open temptation to sin are the devil's only or even his most common weapons. He prefers to seduce us into compromise and deceive us into error. He seeks to oppose God and counterfeit God's actions, take credit for what seems to gain support, and blame God for the devil's actions when they fail. Sounds amazingly like the political culture in which we are now living. We have all kinds of biblical references that inform us that God loves us. 
The God kind of love is a desire and delight in the welfare of the one loved. 1 John 4, 8 and verse 16 says God's very moral nature is love. Jesus told Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his son. John 3, 16. Peter wrote, he cares for you. That's in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Hereby we know love, because he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. That can be found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Paul writes, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. And God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. God's love is implied in one of my favorite verses, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Yet the devil seeks to usurp God and tries to distract and mislead people from recognizing God as their loving father. Satan also seeks to keep people from accepting Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of all who come to him in faith. To achieve his destructive schemes, the devil attempts to incite strife and hatred between humans, and he also entices humans to feel hatred toward God. Just read some of the New Atheism's books, and you will see their hatred of God. They hate God, even though they claim not to believe in God's existence. How irrational is that? In Ephesians 6.10 and following, Paul warns Christians that we are in a struggle against the powers of darkness. If we are to overcome the powers of the devil's agents, we must, says John Stott, bear in mind that they have no moral principles, no code of honor, no higher feelings. They are utterly unscrupulous and ruthless in the pursuit of their malicious designs. Permit me to end this episode with a quote from Dr. James Dobson's book, Life on the Edge. Dr. Dobson writes, what are the characteristics of sheep that remind the Lord of you and me? What is he really saying when he refers to us in that way? Well, shepherds and ranchers tell us that these animals are virtually defenseless against predators, not very resourceful, inclined to follow one another into danger, and they are absolutely dependent on their human masters for safety. Thus, when David wrote, quote, we all, like sheep, have gone astray, end quotes, he was referring to our tendency to move 
as an unthinking herd and away from the watchful eye of the shepherd. He observed this herd instinct a few years ago in a documentary on television. It was filmed in a packing house where sheep were being slaughtered for the meat market. Huddled in pens outside were hundreds of nervous animals. They seemed to sense danger in their unfamiliar surroundings. Then a gate was opened that led up a ramp and through a door to the right. In order to get the sheep to walk up that ramp, the handlers used what is known as a Judas goat. This is a goat that has been trained to lead the sheep into the slaughterhouse. The goat did his job very efficiently. He confidently walked to the bottom of the ramp and looked back. Then he took a few more steps and stopped again. The sheep looked at each other skittishly and then began moving toward the ramp. Eventually, they followed the confident goat to the top, where he went through a little gate to the left, but they were forced to turn to the right and went to their deaths. It was a dramatic illustration of unthinking herd behavior and the deadly consequences it often brings. Thank you for listening to Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, a production of Wave 94 Radio in Tallahassee, Florida. If you have any questions or comments for Joe, please forward them to Doug Apple at Wave 94 at this email address, dougapple at wave94.com. And be sure to join us every Monday evening at 6.45 p.m. on Wave 94 and subscribe through your favorite podcast app, Defending and Commending the Faith, with Joe Mott.